presidency is like an act without role or script, and the people, an audience, viewing a play without plot or purpose, a performance lacking tension, conflict, tragedy, and resolution. Such was the situation faced by John Adams, the second president of the United States, who served during the formative years of the Young Republic, 1797 to 1801, long after the Revolution had been gloriously fought and the Constitution wisely established. The late 1790s became a period when leaders were asked to manage government rather than to make history. Thus, Adams's brief four years in office seemed to stand out as a pathetic parenthesis, a case of character constrained by circumstance. Coming to the presidency after George Washington and followed by Thomas Jefferson, two towering figures who started the Virginia dynasty that would be continued by James Madison and James Monroe, Adams was the only one of the first presidents to serve a single term in the executive office. Andrew Jackson, another Southerner who identified with Jefferson, also served for a successful two terms, 1829 to 1837, after defeating John Quincy Adams, who, like his father, left office after only one term, 1825 to 1829. In the 1960s, at a dinner in the White House hosting the Nobel Prize winners in the Western Hemisphere, John F. Kennedy remarked that never before in American history had there been such a gathering of brilliance since Thomas Jefferson dined alone. Would Adams agree? I dined a large company once or twice a week. Jefferson dined a dozen every day, Adams growled to Benjamin Rush. I had levies once a week, that all my time might not be wasted by idle visits, Jefferson's whole eight years was a levy. American political history begins with the rift between Adams and Jefferson, and it evolved naturally from the psychology of the American founding. The Federalist authors, the theoreticians of the Constitution, made not confidence and trust, but suspicion and doubt, the emotions that would create the possibility of political order, and jealousy was seen as the handmaiden of liberty a never-sleeping jealousy, as Adams put it. Just before they died, Adams and Jefferson embraced each other as brothers, but in their early political careers, the two suspicious minds could only find in each other exactly what they suspected. Thus, Adams distrusted Jefferson as a wasteful aristocrat idling away time on frivolities, and Jefferson suspected Adams himself of scheming to establish the rule of aristocracy in America. Although Jefferson suffered the charge of being a religiously incorrect non-believer, somehow the Virginian, whose elitist educational ideas would rake the genius from the rubbish, and whose ideology made the pursuit of happiness into a national creed, escaped the charge of aristocracy. Yet historically, ease and happiness had been the entitlement of aristocratic society, the leisure class that, as Aristotle put it, could devote itself to civic affairs because it need not bother with the drudgery of labor. Everything that has been said for heredity, observed Adams's French contemporary, Benjamin Constant, the ancient said for slavery. Jefferson hardly went to work and earned money to purchase slaves. He simply inherited them from his father-in-law, and rather than set them free, as did a few courageous Southerners, including Washington, he went along with the rest of the South in turning slaves over to creditors or passing them down through the generations from family to family. How Jefferson, the heredity-stuck aristocratic slave owner, was able to get away with accusing President Adams of being an aristomonocrat 
is one of the most notable cases of falsification in American political history. And what was Adams's terrible offense? It consisted in saying in 1790 what Ralph Waldo Emerson said in 1850, and what today is commonly accepted. Democracy neither can nor should blot out diversity and the distinctions that make a difference, the distinctions of talent, beauty, and strength that the French Revolution set out to obliterate. Curiously, Jefferson, who inveighed against the deadening monotony of uniformity, completely misunderstood what Adams was trying to explain. Not the desirability of an inherited aristocracy, but the inevitability of a spurious one based on the whims of convention. Adams's opponents agreed with Tom Paine that society is based on our wants and government on our wickedness. But to Adams, it was the arbitrariness of society that makes the rules of government necessary. Society on its own introduces what today our contemporary postmodernists call the spectacle of signifiers, and what Adams called the language of signs, where much of life is ceremony and ritual, simulated rather than real, and what is seen is more important than what can be known, and what is written more important than what can be proven. Society is theater, politics, performance, and spin, and aristocracy is wherever the limelight lands. Society, not government, is the problem, for it is the playground of the passions, of pride and pretense, where the vain demand recognition. Adams wrote about the wanton Romans the way F. Scott Fitzgerald, who had read Petronius, wrote about the wasteful rich, and Thorstein Veblen wrote about the leisure class, the idols of useless splendor we shall always have with us. The profoundity of Adams' sensibility lies in his warning that there will be no means of judging society from any religious or transcendental perspective. A deathbed, it is said, shows the emptiness of titles. That may be. But does it not equally show the futility of riches, power, liberty, and all earthly things? The cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, appear the baseless fabric of a vision and life itself, a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Shall it be inferred from this that fame, liberty, property, and life shall always be despised and neglected? Shall laws and government, which regulate sublunary things, be neglected because they appear baubles at the hour of death? The prescient Adams saw that in a democratic republic, Controversies that originate in society move on to the sphere of government and often to the judiciary, the very constitution that Adams had defended. Society must look beyond itself for judgment, unless it prefers, as Adams and the Federalist authors cautioned against, to be a judge in its own cause. Not only Kennedy, but also Presidents Jackson, Lincoln, and Wilson invoked Jefferson's name, as did Franklin D. Roosevelt in the midst of the Great Depression even when those who opposed his New Deal regarded themselves as staunch Jeffersonians. Public high schools have been named after Jefferson and Washington, except in Massachusetts, few traces of Adams have been left on buildings or monuments, and in history textbooks he is mentioned, but rarely treated as a significant figure. In recent years, the spectacular popular response to David McCullough's John Adams and an earlier valuable study by Joseph J. Ellis, Passionate Sage, has led the U.S. Congress to consider building in the Capitol a monument to the two Adamses, the second and the sixth presidents. In the 1990s, America took to John Adams like a lost soul, the likable curmudgeon who died at 91 on July 4, 1826, gasping in his last breath 
seemingly unconcerned with his maker, but instead with his nemesis. Jefferson still lives. Jefferson died on the same day. Older than the Constitution's framers, John Adams was involved in every major political crisis from 1765 to 1801. Long before America declared itself independent of England, he provided the reasoning for it. Yet as to President Adams, he is often treated as a brief passing figure in American political history. In truth, he deserves a far more prominent place in intellectual history and social philosophy, for it is his theory of government that we live with today, although we may be unaware of it. It is also his theory of liberty and rights that survives by virtue of government, even if his own presidency could not survive the conflicting demands made upon it. In Adams, America had the rarest of the species, a president who was not a politician. The Federalist authors, brilliant though they were, and even with their single reference to the need of energy in the executive, had no idea that the presidency would become America's most important political institution. During Adams's era, European thinkers were enamored of either the general will of the people or the sovereignty of Parliament. Adams broke with both traditions to emphasize the importance of the executive. Neither the people nor their representatives have a coherent will, nor does sovereignty have a single voice. Only as an idea does the people exist, as a representation, not a reality, simply a figure of speech for politicians in search of an audience. Against both the French Jacobins and the Southern Republicans, the opponents of the Federalist Party of Washington and Adams, Adams warned that sovereignty without checks under democracy would be what it had been under monarchy, tyranny, and no less arbitrary than the rule of a king, given the vicissitudes of public opinion. The cry, all power to the people, creates the illusion that power will disappear, as though it can be democratized collectively, when in reality it expresses itself singularly, not in the deliberation of the many, but in the determination of the few. Unless checked, the superior few will try to control, and the democratic many will try to claim. Two conflicting social orders can be balanced only by the presence of a third institution, the executive. Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton also believed in a strong executive, but he looked upon the rich, well-born, and able with trust. Adams looked upon elites with suspicion. When Adams's critics told him that people can be counted upon to be on their own because their love for freedom is so great, Adams replied that lions also love their freedom and feel no need to be governed. He was fond of quoting Shakespeare, Power into will, will into appetite and appetite and universal wolf. Only government can control the fever whereof all power is sick. But what Adams believed, Jefferson disdained. That government is best which governs least, declared Jefferson, who trusted popular sovereignty to leave people alone and free to run their own lives. Such a formulation may have left Americans alone all right, but it also left them with a legacy that was as much a curse as a blessing. America was left facing the incompatibility of popular sovereignty with natural right, the will of the majority with the ability of minorities or individuals to enjoy freedom and self-determination. The founders held that people do not have a right to do wrong, and Jefferson hoped that what was rightful would be reasonable. But democracy's cult of a free people's infallible will became the rationale used to justify expanding slavery into the Western territories, as well as excluding immigrants from participating in the democratic dream. 
Adams discerned the contradiction that resides within liberty and democracy, the tension between unalienable rights and their threat by the rule of popular opinion. But America voted Adams out of office and went on to live with a theoretical time bomb that exploded on the battlefield of the Civil War. Historians are reluctant to give Adams a higher rating than Jefferson in evaluating their respective presidencies. But when one studies their attitudes toward the meaning and fate of liberty, both in America and during the French Revolution and the slave uprising in Haiti, there can be no doubt that Adams is the better educator. Revolutionary France saw itself as radically innovative in all things, including the invention of the guillotine. The revolution was made in the name of reason, virtue, and the people, and Jefferson cheered it on, the execution of the king and queen, and the bloody terror itself. Death by guillotine, observed the philosopher G.W.F. Hegel, was the coldest and meanest of all deaths, with no more significance than cleaving off a head of cabbage or swallowing a draught of water. The deaths troubled Jefferson a little, but not much. The liberty of the whole earth was depending on the issue of the contest, he wrote in 1793, and was ever such a prize won with so little innocent blood. Against the crusading revolutionary exuberance of Jefferson and Tom Paine, who also believed that heads must fall so that freedom may rise, Adams sought to keep things in perspective. Ours was a revolution against innovation, he emphasized, reminding Americans that the spirit of 76 was meant to preserve old freedoms, not to propagate new fictions. Adams discerned what his opponents denied, and Lincoln had to face. A Republican form of government is no guarantee that people will respect the rights of others. Jefferson and Payne saw themselves as revolutionists, and insisted that people have a right to do what they will do. Adams saw himself as a constitutionalist, and insisted that laws are intended not to trust to what men will do, but to God against what they might do. The Jefferson-Adams dualism culminated in the Lincoln-Douglas debates of 1858. Senator Stephen Douglas invoked the doctrine of popular sovereignty to claim that the people of Kansas and Nebraska had a right to vote for or against slavery as they saw fit. Lincoln replied that popular sovereignty undermined the Declaration of Independence and left it without the germ or even suggestion of the individual rights of man, thereby rendering it mere rubbish and old wadding. Although Lincoln reasoned with Adams to get us out of a contradiction, when it came to speeches on the 4th of July, he hailed Jefferson, the president who left us with a contradiction. Adams saw politics as the dramatization of two drives, the desire to dominate and the desire to be free of domination. As Adams warned, America's aversion to government